Our New Testament reading for tonight, uh, which contains our text, comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, and I will read down through verse 37. Let's hear the word of the Lord, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, beginning at verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom He chose, He shortened the days. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, He is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Thus coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, let's pray as we consider that word tonight. Father, we need you to speak to us. We need you to open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, that you would bless us mightily, Lord, as only you can, uh, through your spirit. Uh, lead us in your truth, and may that truth touch our hearts and souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we were young, some of us here are young, but most of us are not, but when we were young, we often thought, you know, that we would live 
kind of like forever, right? I mean, life just appears to be this never-ending story that for the most part, when we're young, it just seems to move much too slow. But as we grow older, we realize the truth of the Scriptures that life is but a vapor. We know that James is right when he alludes to Psalm 39 in answering the question, For what is your life? And he says, It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I mean, it seems like only yesterday that we were young and carefree, but where is all the time gone? It's vanished like a mist in the morning sun. And while this may appear to be very sad when we think about it, when we first think about it, as believers in Christ, we should really see that this is very good news for us. Because it should not be our desire, it should not be the desire of our hearts, that our existence in this life, as it is, should continue forever. Because we are looking for something far more promising, far more rewarding, far more wonderful than anything that this life has to offer. What God has in store for us, we, we really don't know for certain. But we do know that all the very best that this world has to offer will pale in comparison to the joys of the life to come. All that this world has to offer will appear to be as nothing. In fact, even less than nothing. In fact, you might realize that that's why the Lord kicked man, Adam and Eve, out of the Garden of Eden when they fell into sin. So they would not eat the fruit of the tree of life and live forever in his fallen state. Never to be redeemed. Never to be regenerated. Never to know the joys of eternal life in Christ. Now, we might be tempted to think, I mean, if that's really the case, right? Like some of the crazy cults have, that, well, if that's really what awaits us, then why are we waiting for it? Let's just enter the next life right away. If the life to come puts this life to shame, then let's get out of here. Let's go on to what's next. But the reason why this thinking is wrong is because our times are in God's hands and not our own. God is the one who has determined our days, not us, not ourselves. The reason that we remain in this life is because God has willed it to be so. When He says it's time to come home, then we can go on in faith. We can go on in joy to what He has prepared for us. But for now, we are called to rest patiently in Him asking that He would give us strength for each day. And and this understanding that life is really short, that it is but a mist, and and that knowledge that we have of the glory that's going to be revealed, that far outweighs any suffering that you and I may endure in this life. And it's important for us to remember that as we consider our text here tonight in Mark 13. I mean, we've already previously seen here that that with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into this world, with the incarnation, with the Word becoming flesh, that rather than bringing a time of peace and harmony, Jesus warned us what? That it was going to be a time of deception, a time of tribulation, a time of war, a time of persecution, a time of hatred for His people, for His church. And yet we can wait patiently through all of this because we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that our God is in control. 
That all of these things must be, yes. But He has promised that He will see us through to the very end. And what awaits us in glory is worth waiting for. Now tonight, as we continue on in Mark 13, we're going to see that between the time of Christ's first coming and His second coming, there will be not only deception, tribulation, and persecution from outside, but there will also be apostasy within the church. There will be these times of falling away. There will be these times when it appears almost as if the whole church might be going the way of the evil one. And yet again, we should realize that God is in control. That these things must be because God is faithful. And He will see to it that His people, His elect, that they will persevere to the end, to the very end. Even if it appears to us that we're the only one left, right? Yet we need to realize that God still reserves for Himself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So my theme this evening will be that Jesus warns His disciples of the great apostasy to come. And under that, there's two points. The warning of great apostasy in verses 14 through 19. And then the promise of great privileges in verses 20 through 23. There's great apostasy coming, but as God's people, we have great privileges. Now, the question that always comes to mind when I think when we read these portions of the Scriptures, whether it's here in Mark 13, whether it's in the parallel passage in Matthew 24 and 25, or it's in Luke 21, the question that always comes to mind is, well, what is Jesus referring to exactly? Is He talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and only that? Or is He talking about those last days before His return, His second coming? And what I said last time is that these two events are really kind of intermingled here. And this is what we call prophetic foreshadowing. It's two events that really look like one. It is, as someone has said, that if you look at a distance, maybe at two mountaintops, they they appear to might be the same mountain. But when you get closer, you realize that they're really not. That there's actually a gap between them. And, And this is actually very common Uh, In the Scriptures, we see this. I'm going to give you some uh, example here from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Um, You know these words, uh, words that Jesus quoted Himself, at least the first part of this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Now you may remember that when Jesus read those words in the synagogue in Nazareth, that He actually stopped partway through there. He stopped right after to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He did not go on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't say that. He stopped right before that. And then He told them what? Today, this Scripture, the one He had just read, is fulfilled in your hearing. So why does He say that? Because with the first coming, Christ has come to proclaim the good news of the Gospel. To save us from our sin. 
And so this prophecy is being fulfilled right then. But the day of vengeance of our God, it's really referring to the final day, and that's still a long ways down the road. I mean, so far it's been, you know, like over 2,000 years. And it looks like this is still going to continue even longer. Now, there are other examples of this, of this prophetic foreshadowing, uh, such as in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 4, where we have kind of the first coming of good tidings and the second coming in judgment uh, together in the same few verses there. I'm not going to read that. It's, It's very similar to what we just looked at. And, and what we often see in this kind of prophecy is that there can be multiple fulfillments, right? And we see that here in our text. It can be fulfilled, this text could be fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but it's really only a type of the fulfillment of the final judgment at the close of, his, of the history of the world. So take a look at verse 14, where Jesus points to an event of great apostasy. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not. The the parallel passage in Matthew says, standing in the holy place. And this abomination of desolation that is spoken of by the prophet Daniel in Daniel 11.31 that we read uh, earlier. And forces shall be mustered to him, to this wicked one, this wicked ruler. They shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So here we actually see uh, the multiple fulfillments of a prophecy. This is fulfilled first by Antiochus Epiphanes back in 168 B.C. And he, he tries to do away with the Jewish religion. That's what we were reading about there in Daniel. That's the first real fulfillment of it. He stops the temple worship. He he sacrifices a pig on the altar of the Lord. And he tries to make the Jewish people do the very same thing. To to destroy their religion. And of course they rebel. It led to a rebellion under the leadership of the Maccabees that brought about an, an independent state in Israel that lasted for a time until the Romans came. And then they conquered Palestine under Pompeii in 63 B.C. But I want you to notice that it says in our text, let the reader understand. So there's an emphasis made here that Jesus is not talking about some past event that had happened years ago before him. What he's talking about here is a future event. He's really saying by... Let the reader understand. We're we're being told here, don't think that this is already fulfilled completely. And and we can see that this applies to the destruction of Jerusalem that will happen later, but we should understand it really goes far beyond that. That there are are multiple fulfillments here from Antiochus Epiphanes to the destruction of Jerusalem, and yet those things are only types that are pointing us to the the anti-type, the final fulfillment of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead. Now we should understand here that this abomination of desolation, it really speaks of apostasy in the worst sense of the word. Because it speaks of the complete overthrow of the truth of God. It speaks of the complete defilement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather than a lamb of God on the altar of sacrifice, we have a pig Rather than the the purity of God and and the words of life, we have the uncleanness of man and we have the words of death. 
And as members of the body of Christ, we should realize that the danger that the, the church faces in this world not only comes from without, as we looked at previously, but it also comes from within. Just as Paul warned the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 as he met with them on his journey back to Jerusalem. Listen to the words of Acts 20, verses 29-31. through For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I'm also going to use uh, this text, I believe, Lord willing, for my... It's actually more than that in Acts 20 for my final sermon here. Lord willing, but we'll see. Well, these words that we read here, they're very much like those of our Lord Jesus Christ as we find them here in uh, the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. There is trouble, there's tribulation, there's persecution, there's hatred, there's apostasy. And so you and I as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be on our guard. We need to keep a careful watch. We are, as Jude says, to earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we must maintain the purity of the gospel, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Uh, you might remember those words. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what, that which you received, let him be accursed. And so the preservation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a very serious work for God's people, for the church. It's that earnest contending for the faith that really led to all the early creeds of the church. Because there were these questions about the Trinity, questions about the deity of Christ, questions about the natures of Christ, questions about the gospel itself. We also know that the Reformation was a time when the gospel was recovered once again. Because the church had gone astray. The church had left its first love. The church had substituted the work of man for the work of Christ. And it was really the, the recovery of justification by faith alone by the Augustine monk by the name of Martin Luther that returned the church of God to the gospel, to the truth of God's word. And yet we should realize this fight is still not over. We are called by Christ here to take heed, to watch and pray. And that is a call to constantly be taking heed, to constantly be uh, watching, to constantly be praying. Because we must always watch out for apostasy. Now, people of God, let's beware of apostasy. Let's realize that it can be like a cancer in the church. And it must be eradicated or will consume the whole church. There is no place in the church for compromise with the lie. There's no place for compromise with the devil. We must hang on to the truth as it is in Jesus, for it is the truth, the only truth, that will truly set us free. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set us free from the hell that we deserve. If, you know, if we had all of eternity, we could never do enough good that would allow us into, enter into heaven. 
If, if we had all of eternity, we could never suffer enough to atone for even one sin, let alone all of our sins. So what is the truth that we must guard so carefully? What is the message of God that we must not allow to be mingled with the message of men? What is the Gospel of Jesus Christ all about? Beloved, the Gospel of Jesus Christ starts with us, with mankind in our sin. We are lost in sin. It starts with you and me who are sinners by nature and by practice. We have not kept the law of God even for a moment, let alone all of our lives. And of course, God would be righteous. He would be just if He just sent every single one of us to hell. And that's why the the law has a place in our preaching of the Gospel. Because it shows us how utterly sinful we really are. It, It shows us that we have no hope of saving ourselves because we don't measure up. We could say that the law was given to bring life. God said, do this and you shall live. So we see that the law, which was supposed to bring life, actually became death to us. Why? Wasn't any lack in the law. It's because of our sin. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked, well, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus give him? He gave him the law. In other words, do this and you shall live. But he couldn't, even though he thought he could. But Jesus made it clear that he couldn't. And neither can we, because why? Because we're dead. Because we've not kept the law. We were dead in trespass and sin. That's what we confessed this morning in our confession of sin. And you and I, we have no hope of eternal life in ourselves. None. We can't do it. But of course, the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us. He has fulfilled the law. He has obtained life for us, eternal life for us. And it was at the cross that Jesus redeemed us. That is, He purchased us. At the cross, Jesus justified us. That is, He enabled us to be declared righteous by His work for us. At the cross, Jesus made propitiation for us. That is, He he appeased the wrath of God that you and I deserved. At the cross, Jesus made expiation for us as well. That is, He, He cleansed us of our guilt. At the cross, Jesus Christ reconciled us with God. Reconciled us. Restored us to a a right relationship with God by bringing peace between God and ourselves because there was no peace. And you see, that's the Gospel that you and I must never give up. That's the good news that we must never exchange for anything else. And most important of all, that's the Gospel that you and I need to put our faith and our trust in. Because all we need for salvation, everything that you and I need to be saved, we find in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why the Scripture says, believe on Him and you will be saved. You will never be ashamed. Now you will notice how in the face of this great apostasy in Jerusalem that Christ warns His followers to flee, right? Without any hesitation. To flee without looking back. And I've told you before how the Christians fled Jerusalem just before the Romans took the city and they went to the other side of the Jordan to the towns of the Decapolis because of this warning from Jesus. 
But we, we need to see something here in these words that Jesus gives of us. We need to see the intensity that goes beyond even what could have happened at Jerusalem and all the suffering, as bad as it was, that went on back in 70 A.D. Because this speaks of that time at the end of history when there will be sufferings and tribulations, when there will be persecutions and hatred, excuse me, when there will be troubles and apostasy, and it will all kind of come to a head. It will all come to its end. It will be like nothing we've ever known. Nothing the world has ever known. There's going to be this time of great tribulation, time like nothing the world has ever seen before. And yet what we see here is that God grants great privileges to His people, even in the midst of the worst of times that have ever been. That in spite of all the things that we see go on in this world, we can be sure, we can be confident that God is going to work all things together for our good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. The events of this world, the events of the history of this world, they're not following some sort of cyclic pattern that repeats itself over and over and over. And they're not governed by chance happenings at random. But rather, God has ordained everything that comes to pass for the good of His people, for the good of His church, for your good. Even for, and especially for, our salvation. Notice the first privilege that we see here for the people of God. Notice that it says in verse 20, And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom He chose, He shortened those days. So it's important to point out that these days which Jesus speaks of here as being in the future are said to be shortened by God. In a way, if you read that, it almost sounds like They've already occurred, right? And that again, it shows us that history, what's going on in this world, is nothing more and nothing less than God's eternal plan coming to reality. There's not one detail left here to chance. And we should not miss that these will be terrible times indeed, yet but for the sake of the elect, for the sake of those whom God chose to be His own before the foundation of the world, God says He will shorten these days. Not because we deserve them, but it's for our sake. I think if they weren't shortened, uh, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's people, they are shortened. Not for the sake of the reprobate, not for the sake of unbelievers, not for the sake of the rich or the powerful, but only for the sake of the people of God. Whether they be rich or poor, powerful or weak, the family of God, a people comprised of all the nations, we're told it is the apple of God's eye. He will watch over us. He will protect us. In fact, he, 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 he who lifts a finger against us will actually find himself fighting against God himself. And that's not a battle you want to get into. At this point, Jesus once more brings up the fact that this, at this time there's going to be many false Christs, many false prophets. As I have said, it's a time of great apostasy. There are many who depart from the faith. There are many who lead multitudes away in error. There are many whose love grows cold 
as the Scripture says. But here's what Jesus said. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, He is there. Do not believe it. These apostates will lead people away from the truth as it is in Christ. They will even try to imitate Christ. But Jesus says that we're not to believe it even for a moment. As we're going to see next time, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, no one's going to have to point Him out to you. Right? You will know it. He will be openly revealed for all to see. He will come and all will see Him, even they who pierced Him, as the Scripture says. In verse 22, we see that Jesus gives us the reason why we're not to believe when they say Christ is here or He's there. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive. Instead of the the first coming of Christ ushering in this time of truth and pure doctrine, which I think we thought that would be really what would happen, right? That's probably how we would do it. And surely, uh, on the minds of the apostles, they probably thought something like that. But Jesus says it's going to be just the opposite. This is actually going to be a time of apostasy. There will be many false Christs, many false prophets. Ever since the time of Jesus, there have been those who've tried to gather followings after themselves, saying that they were somebody great, even claiming to be the Christ. There have been many who went about leading people astray with false teachings. Still rampant today. Cults continue to grow. I think sometimes we're amazed at what some people believe, right? And yet when you suppress the truth... There's nothing left to choose except lies. And man would rather believe the lie of Satan than believe the God of truth. Of course, the most unusual thing here is that these false Christs and these false prophets we're told will actually perform signs and wonders that will deceive. You know, people today often think that signs and wonders are proofs that these things are really true. But Jesus says that these signs and wonders will actually be used not to lead people to the truth, but to lead them into error, into falsehood, into apostasy. People will fall for these false signs and they will believe the lie. And so we should realize just how powerful these signs and wonders really are. We we might think, well, we would just see through them. We might think that we would not be led astray by them because we're so smart. But Jesus warns us here that these false Christs and false prophets will arise and they will show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. That's how powerful these signs and wonders really are. They are a strong delusion. The whole world will go after the lie, after the dragon, after the beast, right? That's what we're looking at in Revelation. But... There's one great more great privilege that God gives to us as His elect. You know, some have thought that the reason the elect are not deceived is because they're not here to be deceived. The Lord has already taken them out of this world. But that really doesn't fit with what Jesus say, says next in the text. But take heed. It is be on your guard. Take careful notice of this. See, I have told you all things beforehand. So why would we need to take heed if we weren't here? We weren't going to be here. So we are warned here by our God, by our King, that these things must be so. 
And so our inability to be deceived doesn't rest on us, doesn't rest on our merit, our intelligence, our abilities. It really rests upon the sovereignty of God and His ability to keep us. That doesn't mean we don't have any responsibility in this. We must always maintain the sovereignty of God on one hand and the responsibility of man on the other, right? These things go together. We have a hard time with them. We watch, why? Because we know God watches over us. We endure suffering because we know that God will strengthen us, that He will keep us through whatever we go through. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for we know that it is God who works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Now, people of God, as those who have been saved by the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ, as those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, we have great and glorious privileges that the world does not enjoy. We know that God is working all things together for our good. He does not do this for the people of this world. He does this for His people, for His chosen ones, for us. Yes, the world may enjoy some of the benefits of God's goodness and grace that come upon His people. But of course you realize all that does is condemn them even more. But if you put your faith and your trust in Christ to save you from your sins, then God has many more great and precious promises for you. He will not only work all the events of your life for good, but He he will also see you through to the very end. He, He tells us all things of what's going to happen beforehand, right? And He promises that He will be with us through all those things. So, beloved, if there is one thing that you and I should never doubt, even when we're in the midst of troubles, even in the midst of persecutions, even in the midst of apostasy, we should never doubt the fact of God's love for His people. So what I want to do here is close with those words from Romans 8, beginning at that verse that I've been referring to all evening. Uh, This is a very good section of Romans 8. I think I say, you know, the Christian lives in Romans 8. There's so much there for us. It's this section, of course, the last few verses, uh, it's a good section to memorize. It's a good section to meditate upon. We find so much here in in the Word of God. But uh, beginning at Romans 8, at verse 28, I'm going to read through the end of that chapter. And, And listen to these things that are ours in Christ. That God promises us things that you and I can hang on to no matter what we're going through. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Here's what we say. If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things, everything that we ever need in this life and the life to come? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? You know that answer, right? No one, nothing, ever. It's God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything do that? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, all those things that we fear in this life, they cannot separate us from the love of Christ. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Isn't that how the world looks at the church? At God's people? Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, that's our comfort. As we take heed, as we watch, and as we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.